Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify. The global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Very difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being. We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome back to the Next Picture Show, a movie of the week podcast devoted to a classic film and the way it shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Scott Tobias, here again with Keith Phipps, Tasha Robinson, and Genevieve Kosky. On last week's episode, we talked about AI, Artificial Intelligence, a science fiction film about an uncommonly sophisticated android who gets adopted by a family and goes on a journey to find them after they can no longer have him in the house. This week, we're bringing in After Yang, the new film by Koganada, who made a striking independent debut with a 2017 film, Columbus. After Yang is also about a sophisticated android who gets adopted by a family but he malfunctions and breaks down right after the opening credits. And so the journey in the film is not taken by a robot, but by a father, Jake, played by Colin Farrell. Yang is the name of the quote-unquote techno-sapien that Jake and his wife Kira, played by Jodie Turner-Smith, picked up for their own adopted daughter as an older brother type. Though as two busy parents, they've been leaning too hard on Yang to fill in the caretaking gaps. So like any overcompensating father... Jake promises his daughter, Mika, that he's going to get Yang repaired, even though he bought a refurbished model from a shop in Chinatown that no longer exists. So in the absence of a genius bar, Jake tries to get the Android fixed in various repair shops. But at a certain point, when it's clear repair isn't possible, he becomes interested in accessing Yang's memories and understanding the philosophical mysteries at his core. After Yang could be thought about as a live action inside out, and that Yang's component parts allow us to break down the inner workings of the human mind. But it's also a film about grief, identity, memory, and finally, the meaning of life itself. Those are heavy questions, and we'll get into them after the break. Come on, Yang. What are you doing? Come on. What happened to Yang? I don't know. He shut down last night. He won't restart. Has this happened before? No. If we can't get Yang fixed, we're not going to buy another sibling for Mika. It is an interior core problem. I need your permission to break open the core. 
We've always known that some bots are equipped with spyware. You might not want this bot in your house anymore. I wish I had a real memory. What do you mean? Did you only want to be human? That's such a human thing to ask, isn't it? Honest with you. Wait, it's it's not being honest an option for you. Do you want him back? Of course I do. I want him back too. I just need a little more time. So, what did you think of After Yang, uh, Genevieve Kosky? Oh, we're starting with me. Yeah, I really loved it. It kind of devastated me for a fair amount of time afterwards. And I'm still, I I was only able to watch it once as a screener. And I really, really wish I had had a chance to watch it again in preparation, because I think there are some really heady, like philosophical ideas at play here that surely could be picked apart more than I was able to on that one viewing, because I think I just responded to it so hard on an emotional level. I think it really got to me most as a film about grief and memory. And I will say I semi-recently lost a dog. It's still like really hard for me. And my phone is delivering photos to me every day, little like flashes of memory of him. And I just kept thinking of that during those sequences of Colin Farrell, like going through, like those sequences are very impressively done and just like very cool on a editing filmmaking level. But I feel like I was just processing those sequences through this like different but kind of similar personal experience I'm going through. So I think that's where I really just like locked into the emotional core of this in a way that maybe obscured some other parts of it. But I will say also that I think what initially struck me most about this film was the the world, the look of it. And I've talked before on this podcast how I'm like really prone to like locking into interesting worlds and world building is like something that I really glom onto um, with films. And it, I, we didn't talk about it in the AI half, but it is something that I was really drawn to in that film. And there was so much in this world that I like wanted to know more about. But the fact that I came out of this movie, like not feeling frustrated that I didn't know why there were plants inside all of the vehicles for some reason, (laughs) I think kind of underlines that for me, like the emotional center of this film did end up taking center stage. Okay, that's fascinating. I had almost the exact opposite reaction. (laughs) And yet, very much a similar reaction. I, I also fixated on the plants in the cars. But to me, I mean, that was just sort of emblematic of how I responded to the film in general. I did not have a huge emotional response to most of this film. There's a sequence that is out on the internet. A24 put it out as a, a promo. That's the opening credits where the the four-person family at the heart of the movie is competing in an off-screen dance competition. Uh-huh. And you just see the, <laughs> the moves that they're making as they're directed by a, an off-screen voice as 
I, I forget, but I think I, I think it's something like thirty thousand participants at the beginning, and then they're eliminated in in batches of of many thousands at once. And you see them competing, and uh, several other people who will come up later in the film competing with their own families, and it's just such a an explosive moment of like verve uh, in terms of like the music and the motion everything going on. And I, I kept wanting to come back to something like that throughout the film, which is very quiet and very intellectual and very heady. But I didn't have much of a mo- an emotional response to most of it, apart from one moment that I think we'll get into in a little bit. But I found myself afterward just like not able to let it go. It's such a, a densely constructed movie in a way different from AI, which is constantly throwing imagery and dialogue at you. In this case, it's the the movie's like constantly quietly layering ideas and emotions and scene setting uh, details like the the moss in the cars that just leaves you with a lot to pick apart. So I, I had a much more like chilly intellectual response to most of this movie rather than a, a huge gushy emotional one. But I still came out with a huge respect for how it's constructed. And it's just really stuck with me. I watched it out of Sundance and I also haven't had a screener and haven't been able to revisit it. So I just find myself going back to individual moments, individual scenes and and thoughts and lines and aesthetic choices with the filmmaking. I think it's a really remarkable film, but it's not a film that I had the the giant emotional response to the two that you did. Mm. Yeah, I I saw it out of Sundance too. And uh, I watched it again because it's on it's on Showtime. Our friend Sam Adams had a piece where he he interviewed Coconut and, and read about the film. It's very good. I'm, we'll link to it somewhere. But he he talks about how it, it is. There's so much going on. You could focus on one element and 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 kind of you know maybe less on on others. And the first time through, I really focused on you know what the story was and the mystery of of, of Yang and where this was going uh, to the point where. When you kind of get it at the heart of the of the mystery, it's, it's so small and personal and and, and emotional. It is, it is overwhelming. It creeps it creeps up on you. Uh, the second time through, I was really kind of trying to untangle a bit of the world that we kind of only see glimpses of, and what that would meant. And and you know, reading Sam's piece and a piece by Leo Kim on on uh, on Polygon, uh, you know, t- talking about the identity element of it uh mm-hmm. too like because he is a yang is a robot if not originally designed for being used to help acclimate uh, a child adapted from china uh which raises all kinds of questions but i don't know yeah i'm kind of rambling fun facts i'm kind of mm-hmm. i'm kind of rambling around it but but yeah there's a lot going on in this but i think it's dense in a way that invites exploration and i think really comes into focus in those moments when it dwells in the emotions and they, and they do hit really hard. I, you know, I, I like this film a lot. I, I liked, I like Hoganada's uh, first film Columbus and I'm really enjoying uh, Pachinko so far. I'm not, I'm only like Ooh, four, three, three episodes into that, but, but, but we'll do a bonus episode on Pachinko for sure. I, without no spoilers, but the end of the third episode, good mm-hmm. Lord. Okay. Anyway, carry on. Also, um, well, uh, and, and this will actually tie back into what Tasha brought about the dance sequence, but just, Real, real quick noting the opening credits of pachinko are some of my favorite ever they're so good and i think yep. the dance sequence in after yang like it's it's an opening credit sequence you know it, it well it culminates in yang's 
malfunctioning. So I, I guess it, in that one small way, it's important to the plot. But really, it feels to me just kind of like a standalone opening credit sequence, you know, and, and, and it doesn't necessarily relate to the rest of the movie on a thematic or, or tonal level. And to be like kind of cynical about it, I feel that a 24 uh in releasing it was maybe trying to like catch on to some ex machina vibes mm, and yeah. <laughs> like attractive actor doing a interesting dance thing but it does not really fit i don't think with the rest of the movie and as tasha said it said it never really gets back to that type of energy level but i think it's sort of a getting you excited to watch the movie mm-hmm. <laughs> sequence it's really effective it's only the second time through that I realized it was the rest of the cast doing the yeah. dance scene. It's like, oh, hey, that's Clifton Collins Jr. and Serena Chattery. Yeah. <laughs> I, I the love the, the mechanics of that, though, because it does, they, they do just seem like a bunch of random strangers that you're seeing. It, it feels like, back at the Dissolve, Genevieve and I did a podcast bonus episode about the, the DreamWorks dance party ending. <laughs> and how you, you parade all the characters out to have a big dance at the end because you don't know how else to end your movie with, uh, with a bunch of zazz. And it, it just became a very standard thing for animated movies for a while. And this kind of feels like front loading that. But mm. then when you realize, I, I, I recognize Clifton Collins and uh, Sarita Chowdhury the first time through and thought, okay, that's interesting. They must be in this film somewhere. But when we get deeper into the film and we realize we never do see the other three people that each of them Mm -hmm. have dancing with them in those sequences, those are just like little windows into their families and their lives. And it's such an invitation to parts of the, the movie, parts of the world that we never see, parts of their personal lives that we never see. It's such a provocative little tease. And like so many things in this movie, it's just a hugely dense thing that you're gently invited to unpack on your own because the movie isn't going to do it for you. My uh, reaction to the film was similar to Genevieve's. It was just a huge gut punch for me. And, and, and I am quite a distance away from it. I saw it. I was fortunate enough to see it in a theater and and was a complete disaster in the parking garage <laughs> after Aww. i saw it i think you know and it has been for me you know a year and kind of it sort of continues and and it was actually a review that i started writing in the first person which i never do ever never never done ever in my whole career and then i decided to scrap it because no I, I just didn't feel comfortable doing it and also <laughs> just even really sharing what what was kind of going on but i did feel like I connected as to be just a sliver personal, you know, I'm not a believer, really. I'm not a churchgoer. And it felt the film kind of, I I consider myself sort of a a, a glass half full atheist. (laughs) And I feel like the film kind of connected with me powerfully Mm. on that, on that level of just like, when you when you are a person such as myself, life becomes incredibly significant. You're not thinking about, and to the extent that you're thinking about the afterlife, you're thinking about how how lives uh, seed uh, other lives and uh, affect other lives. And and, and and for for the film to kind of vibe on that a little bit, I, I felt the film really resonated on that spe- very specific level of just that understanding of this android that absolutely does not have an afterlife. I think we can pretty much, you know, I, I don't think he's, there's a robot heaven here, <laughs> but whose life is determined to be significant uh, because of, of the influence that he had on the lives of others. I mean, that that was what really got to me, you know, and I'm intellectualizing it now, 
But I think that's what kind of accounted for how hard it hit me when I was, you know, af- you know, when I was sort of after the film, I just kind of like that take on the meaning of life. And uh, I mean, that that was what got what to me about after Yang, you know, on top of everything else. And this was something that Sam mentioned in the piece is like you could leave that movie and write a pretty long list of the themes of, mm-hmm. of after Yang. Oh, it, yeah. is, it is a it yeah. is a film. It is a rich text and that has been thoroughly, thoroughly thought, thought through by um Koganata here yeah so that was basically my basic response to the to, to the movie i was quite moved by it was it the the scene where kira and yang are talking about the improbability of an afterlife specifically that uh prompted that reaction or was it just the the greater whole of the film i think it was the great, great i mean the, the scene that i keep going a couple of scenes i go back i mean it's the ending of the movie i just uh so sweet with the father and daughter um mm-hmm. and that an amazing cover of the of the song from all about lily shushu that mitsuki does and the way that leads uh, that that is just so great and i think there's also the scene where where we flash back to yang teaching mika about the tree right and about about mm. how how she the grafting the grafting yeah. right of just how you know she's not uh, maybe made to think that she's not a part of this family but she is and she's created something new that she's bonded to this tree and has become part of it forever you know and i just like those kind of ideas you know seated in the movie i mean i think there's just a you know, this is a very unusual science fiction movie because, you know, it, it's so emotional. And I think that its worldview is is fundamentally optimistic, which is, again, not something we're used to seeing in a futuristic science fiction movie. That doesn't mean that it's is it without its moments of bleakness. But I think there's a there's a warmth to this film that is quite striking. So while we're getting personal, I I alluded earlier to the fact that there was one thing in the movie that really undid me emotionally. And talking about the tree grafting scene i i'm not sure how much i associated how much i put these factors together while actually watching the movie again it's been a little while but the thing that undid me was a different visual of a tree there's a moment in the film where colin farrell finds out that yang had an internal recorder that could record very small snippets of memory and he interfaces with it. He's just, he's, the visual is just him sitting on a futon with dark glasses on, talking to the dark glasses. But then you see the point of view of this AR interface where he's entering Yang's memory uh, for the first time and, and visualizing it. And he realizes that there's more there than he realized. And he opens up a second menu and it appears as this, <laughs> as this, wow. It appears as this giant branching tree of connected memories. Mm-hmm. And it's, I mean, it's a tree and it's, it's like a galaxy of stars at the same time. It's a really aesthetically beautiful image. But, you know, for me, what that opened up is just one of the things that I've been most obsessed with, I think, throughout my life is just this feeling that everybody contains that kind of vast, complicated galaxy. And when when people die, we lose any interface with it at all. We lose any window into it. But for the most part, it's just very hard to to access any meaningful percentage of that in any one mm-hmm. pe- in any one person. It's so difficult to connect to each other in any kind of way that reflects how vast our inner worlds are. And this was a visual image that communicates that in one second. And then as he slowly starts 
moving deeper into this tree and examining these memories, he basically gets to live inside somebody else's skin. And much like with AI, the movie doesn't explain this to us. He he doesn't say any of this to anybody later. He doesn't talk about the profundity of wearing Yang's skin and living his life. But the idea of having that intimate connection to somebody else is overwhelming to me. And then the idea of being able to use something like that to understand somebody who's gone, who you you can't speak to about how you understand them in a new way, I think is heartbreaking and part of the human condition, you know, just just the what we lose when people die. So, yeah, a lot of of kind of visual elements to this movie that just tap into like gigantic, hard to fathom, hard to communicate ideas about the human condition in very simple but it, like evocative aesthetic ways. It's so interesting to me that you point that out as as the scene, Tasha, because it's the it's the same scene I was referring to when I was talking to how it knocked me out, but I was processing it in a just a different way, a more external way, I think, in in terms of how humans and technology and memory work together. And like that visual, like I said, I was I was processing as my phone giving me memories of my dead dog every day and the the little like pull down screen of memory, you know, of today's memories. And just the feeling that you get these like little snippets of something that was so important and so big and so real. And you just have this like little tiny glimpse of it, infinite tiny glimpses, but it's still not the whole. It's still not the thing. But again, to go back to the rich text of it all, the way you read it, absolutely. Like I get that too. So I think it's a very much a movie that like what you bring to it is going to inform how you interpret any given moment or or visual even. I think it's smart and kind of lovely too that we only do get those little snippets too because he doesn't really get to relive Yang's life. He gets to have these suggestions of it. And I think it's also kind of captures how memory works. I mean, the, the they are these really you know, point at powerful flashes. You don't, you, you know, you don't have flashbacks. You have something more like akin to this, which is like, I remember being at that show and and how you know someone I loved looked at at that show and 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 or you know I remember walking down this pathway and and you know it is it is more like that than than an extended flashback. When we do get a flashback in this, it is mm-hmm. uh, a living person re- recalling it too, and and it's so nicely done the way they 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 show that opening. A scene of the photograph being taken from different angles and and different perspectives and and uh, I I don't know I, there's a lot to unpack uh, and and the more you unpack I think the more there's to admire in this film. So just to add a yet another wrinkle on top of all of this, the piece that we put up at Polygon today that Keith referenced earlier is from an Asian writer who's written mm-hmm. uh, a lot about uh, techno-Orientalism and what he calls the the hollow Asian body. The stereotype, this is a, a science fiction trope that I was not aware of, um, and I'll leave it to him. We'll, we'll point to it in the show notes, I'm sure. I'll leave it to him to unpack because it's, it's complicated and there's a long history in science fiction. But effectively, he came to me wanting to write about this idea that science fiction marginalizes Asian people, particularly in ways that 
presents them as uh, cold and unfeeling, like complicated calculators, good at math, not good at emotions, and effectively creates the idea of a hollow Asian body that other people can put on and, and insert themselves into. And I read this pitch and he hadn't seen the movie yet. And I said, you, you have to see this movie. So I sent him to see it. And it fits so clearly into his thesis. Uh, he like we just kind of geeked out about it for a while, and he ended up writing a piece about it, and then talking to the director, who said, "Yeah, this is exactly what I'm addressing." So on top of all of these experiences that we personally had with our own interfaces with this idea of entering Yang's body, it's also very specifically addressing a science fiction trope mm -hmm. of Asians being empty people, except in this case, the white guy enters the Asian body and instead of finding it empty because the literal Asian robot is a calculator, he finds it full of a far vaster and richer life than he possibly could have imagined and gains access to it. So all of us are having these very individual interactions and responses to it, but it's also in conversation with all of science fiction history and an entire like range of racist, like prejudicial stereotypes that are out in the culture. It's dealing with all of those things and Koganata's like own life and own history and own culture at the same time. It's just, it's ridiculous how far down the rabbit hole this movie goes. I was just thrilled that you let him use the term sci-fi in that piece, Tasha. Uh, <laughs> I've gotten over it. It's uh, it, it, it works so much better in headlines. We're constantly worried about uh, like character length on stuff. I've broken down on a, a, like it's fine. It's sci-fi. You're, 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 you're in my head I'll, whenever I, I try to write it. Like no, Tasha wouldn't like that. I loved you, Harlan Ellison, but you're dead. You you don't get to control whether we say sci-fi anymore. I'm so sorry. He's the most litigious dead person ever. I don't know. <laughs> He's suing this podcast right Somehow. now because we mentioned Incredible. him. Incredible. Uh, how did he know? Just to tag on to uh, what Tasha was talking about and also recommend yet another piece uh, written by a friend of the show, Allison Wilmore, who reviewed it for, for Vulture. And she also kind of uh, honed in on the Asian tropes of sci-fi, but on a much more visual level and how, uh, especially in like Asian inflected futures are often very dystopian. And these borrowed trappings, a symptom of societies becoming more callous and crowded, more foreign around main characters who invariably aren't. And she was really taken with the warmth and the unfussiness of the way that the film works its Asian influences into its world building. So I think that's yet another piece worth reading if, if this element of the film is, is of interest to you. Yeah, for sure. The sort of pan-Asian influences in the like the architecture, the kind of kimono style clothing that everyone wears, the presence of uh, bonsai trees, the particular both kind eating of ramen. wall hangings, the, the eating of ramen, the, the fact that Colin Farrell's career is in running a tea shop where he's very tied up in like the aesthetic experience of tea. There's a ton of kind of like Asian culture trappings to this future without that sense of of like over technologicalization is that a word <laughs> without the sort of burden of technology that we see in so many futures like blade runner and blade runner uh, 2049 yeah i mean that i mean the, the world of the film is kind of fascinating to unpack just the, just the how 
unspecific it is while also being very specific <laughs> you know i mean yeah. like the, like it's full of these details of the of the flowers growing in cars and and uh you know it, it has strong ideas about you know what people wear and how they interact and what their homes look like and that sort of thing but it doesn't it doesn't it's not interested in telling us when this is going to be it doesn't or how the world came to be this way mm-hmm. uh it doesn't necessarily have a strong opinion one way or the other about about how we're supposed to feel about this <laughs> about this world it just is kind of like this really interestingly drawn thing that we can kind of play around in a little bit there is one like really kind of overt detail that I can think of in terms of like kind of a clue of the the history of this world. I'm wondering if it's stuck out to anyone else. The, the, is it, uh, it's not the racist uh, uh, shop owner with a little sign, right? Uh, yeah, the there's no yellow in this red, white, and blue. I uh-huh. think that's what it said. I mean, there's some sort of history there that we're not mm-hmm. getting the full story of uh, tensions with, with China, you mm-hmm. know, why... You know, I don't. I don't think it's a flaw. I think we're just there's a lot yeah. of withheld information, and and you know the the whole idea that there's sort of elements to Yang's build that are that are like you know antique and mysterious in some way. Uh, you know, we it's never fully explained, and that's okay. But yeah, it, it, there's definitely more than we're than we're shown. And there's also just a whole thread about where, first of all, where Technosapiens came from. You know, Sarita Chowdhury is playing a museum curator who talks about them like they came from the end of AI, you know, like they're uh, visiting aliens. Like she she talks about their mysteries and their origins in a very nonspecific way that just makes it seem like there was probably some singularity event that nobody understands. We We don't really know who makes technosapiens or why they are the way they are and on top on top of that late in the film we're introduced to the idea of clones which 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 has not best you know i've seen it twice now i don't believe it comes up before they're referenced and it's just another little uh signpost that 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 we're not allowed to follow but but i think enriches the world of the film in some interesting ways I should say this is based on a short story by an author named Alexander Weinstein, who we haven't brought up. Koganaga read the story and was just really fascinated by specifically the idea of exploring mourning for a robot. But uh, having read the short story, like the cloning idea and the prejudice that the Colin Farrell character Jake has against clones are there in the story. And it's just this weird little George Saunders detail that isn't really explored. Mm. And in the movie, that's that's one of the few places that I felt a, an actual lack in what was withheld from us, you know, that it doesn't just feel like part of the background that we don't need to explore. Like, this is evidence that our main character, whose journey we're following, has a, a strong prejudice like that borders on racism like that that clearly is a a striation in the society but because the clones that we see in the film know about his prejudice and are angry about it and treat him differently because of it and reference it as though it's like a larger thread in society but we have no idea what his objection is and that is maybe the only thing in this movie that rankled me a little bit is just sort of that feeling of, you know, if you're going to make your your main character a bigot in some way, like you need to have some sense of why he, he is that way or like what his objection is. But that said, I mostly just want to bring in the fact that this is, you know, based on somebody's story that you can go out and find online. Yeah, I guess maybe I just didn't 
that's <laughs> sort of a failure on my part. I didn't really track all uh, all of that. But again, it's been uh, it's a lot of film, and I'm a little bit of a distance from uh, seeing it that that the one time that I did. But I think that we can um, say that there are some associations, let's say, between the hostility <laughs> felt here towards the future and, and say, the flesh fair and, uh, and AI. And uh, we'll be right back after this break to talk about that and many, many other connections between AI and After Yang. Yang's been wonderful. And we'd all miss him terribly, but We've been over-reliant on him. We brought Yang to connect Mika to her Chinese heritage, not to raise her. Yeah, but we spent a lot of money on Yang, man. I'm not gonna... I'll feel bad if he does more for Mika than teach her Chinese. Fun fact. He does a lot more than that, but you're missing the point. What's the point? If we can't fix Yang, we're not gonna buy another sibling for Mika. That would just be strange. We can't afford it anyway. So we need to be more involved, more than we are now. And not just in raising her and in connecting Mika to our culture and heritage, like that would be on us. So we need to be ready. Now it's time for connections when we bring these two films together, AI and AY, as uh, Keith referred to them, uh, and <laughs> talk about all the things they have in common. Uh, uh, Keith, you want to get us started here? I mean, I was struck when we originally came up with this pairing that that After Yang is in some way a mirror image of AI, in the sense that AI is a film about a family, uh, in its opening segments at least. Uh, it's a film about a family that's disrupted or threatened or somehow you know, made uneven in, by, by the presence of a, of a robot child. Whereas After Yang is a you know, film about how the absence, the, the, the removal uh, and the mourning for a, a, an android threatens the stability of a family. I mean, it, to me, it's just kind of that right there is, is, is I, I don't know to what degree AI was a direct influence on that, but it, but it almost feels like an attempt to turn some elements of, of, of AI inside out. Yeah, I mean, it, it definitely does feel like a a sharp reversal to have Mika being kind of the driving force in the family for fix Yang, bring him back. He was, he was important to me. We had bonded versus the way Martin responds to David in AI. Martin. (laughs) (laughs) He was on death's door. Give Martin a break. (laughs) T Martin. I, I mean, I don't know. I don't know whether we should give him a break or not. He, again, yeah, he, not, he does some he does some terrible things, and it results in some terrible things. But AI is not concerned at all. I think with Martin's inner life, with who he is, and what he's lost in his illness, what he's lost. Apart from that, like forlorn, sullen look that he gives his friends who are are playing in the pool because he's clearly not allowed to to join them. I just don't think that we have that much of a sense of who he is or why he matters. Whereas Mika in uh, After Yang is kind of one of the emotional centers of the movie. Like we, we see a lot more movement and action and thought and development out of Jake, but Mika is the one in the family that feels things strongly, you know, because she's such a young child. She feels the loss. She feels Yang 
as a person where his, the, the parents both kind of see him as a, a convenient household device. You know, the robot that we were joking about at the top of uh, part one of this conversation that can, you know, cook and do our laundry. The, he was their babysitter robot that was full of Chinese fun facts and uh, Mandarin lessons. But, you know, Tamika, he's a person and he's a person that's died and nobody's really acknowledging it. Well, I mean, you can see, too, that attitude potentially of her, her parents in the way and the way Yang's body is just kind of like flopped over on the kitchen table. I mean, that's not really how you would treat any being that you considered to be human who had, who had died. It was like, oh, it's this, it's this thing that I need to take into the shop. Uh, and I think it's a little I think they must acknowledge that it's a little bit more than that, but it's less than human for sure. I'm also interested specifically in the the marriages, the husband and wives in, in these family units and how they're reflected in, in each of these films. We don't get a whole lot uh, between uh, Henry and Monica, or we don't get a whole lot of information about them as a couple. But what we do get, like, I feel like the only time we see them kind of happy and connecting is right after monica imprints on david and like the 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 whole perfume sequence like while they're they're getting ready to to go out i feel like that's the only time we see them like really enjoying being in each other's presence and like maybe there's there's some sort of implication that like monica needed a child to feel like whole in, in her relationship whereas i feel like after yang is pretty strongly fixated on the marriage between Jake and Kira. You know, we've we've said a dozen times now. There's there's a lot going on in this film, but there's a whole marriage story <laughs> happening happening here. That, and it, I was really struck by the fact that for how much of the film they never share a frame together. I think there's maybe three scenes where they're like together in a frame and they're or, or they're like way on opposite sides of it. Like they're physically distanced through so much of of this movie. And I wouldn't say that they like come together by the end of it, but they are maybe like kind of making steps back toward each other as a couple. And like, I'm not sure exactly what that's meant to comment on. But I just find it interesting that this story that is so much about Yang and so much about Yang and Mika is also so much about the parents in this relationship and kind of separated from the main storyline, but also like very much intertwined with it. I mean, I think the the tension there is both of them have been relying on Yang to mm-hmm. take over their parental duties. And mm-hmm. when he's out of commission, they're both pretty frustrated with just the everyday ritual of yeah. you, you have to feed this kid. You have to get this kid to school. You have to bring this kid home from school. You have to care for her and, and entertain her and and raise her as a human being, which is something neither of them have really been doing. And there's the added tension, and this is a detail I find fascinating that the film doesn't get much into, that Colin Farrell's tea shop is clearly not doing well. Yeah. He's, it's, it's empty. Uh, the one customer that we see in it is annoyed because essentially he doesn't no have tea crystals. Yeah. I you tea, tea. I, you're a tea <laughs> shop. You don't have tea crystals. But he's telling his wife that it's so packed that he has to come home late every night. You know, he's deliberately distancing himself from his family for whatever reason. He just doesn't want to be home. He doesn't want to be bothered. And they're, they're both kind of seeing their daughter as a burden. So the gradual move back towards each other is also a move back towards 
bonding with Mika and remembering that Mika is a human being that they love and are responsible for, as opposed to, you know, just kind of another check mark in their day. Yeah, I mean, Yang is basically an incredibly sophisticated tablet, right? I mean, he's the tablet that you give the kid, and the kid kind of goes <laughs> off and enter- entertains herself, right? Um, not that that ever happens at the Tobias household. <laughs> uh, uh, my kid has never, my kids have never seen tablets or phones in their whole life. But I mean, but but it does, but it does kind of, you know, it is this kind of supplement, and and, and when you, and it is kind of a mediating force, and it and it kind of unbalances this family yang does in that in that respect and uh his disappearance is helpful to some extent <laughs> to the degree mm-hmm. that you know i mean not to say, of course the film isn't quite sympathetic about how meaningful yang ultimately is but the way that yang is being used by this uh, family while well-intentioned in in a lot of ways is also kind of getting in the way of what their roles are supposed to be as parents and then also you know relatedly the roles as uh, husband and, and wife so uh, all of that kind of uh, makes sense one, one other thing i kind of wanted to mention too about when you're talking about the kind of connections of these films is is just how uh, you know and how they kind of parallel each other or mirror images of each other in fascinating ways is that, is that they're both these journeys of discovery you know one kind of undertaken by david in ai and then and uh and and uh after yang one being sort of undertaken by jake and and um and you know at least through through david certainly learned something but but we we definitely learned something about the world of ai through david's departure from the bubble of his D- domestic life and and uh, or, or at least his adopted folks life and uh and and in uh and after yang i think jake learns uh, learns a lot too i mean there, this is you know he um has this idea that he can just find the origins of 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 uh this android and get it fixed i mean he just wants to get it fixed it's a machine that needs to get fixed you know you know of course we learn through him a little bit what the what the world of the the film looks like but also you know he learns a lot about the significance of uh of what yang has done or what how he has affected people's lives of 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 this vast store of of memories and things that things that happened you know before yang or before they knew yang uh also uh, come to light as well and so both of these films really kind of do you know function as very similarly arced journeys of discovery he also kind of has to reflect on his own relationship with yang and realize it was deeper than he ever really considered that that i don't know if he ever thought of him as a son but but certainly their interactions are such that he kind of had to reckon with paternal feelings that he wasn't necessarily even aware that he had at the time as for ai i, I think this is a point at which we we have to discuss dr no Oh no! We, 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 the we one element did. of the film I don't like. Get to that. <laughs> I, uh, well, well, Scott's "Oh no" uh, definitely makes me want to hear his reaction. But we'll just note that I, I think that sequence is is interesting in how it presents the different types of knowledge that one can seek and the different places one can can find it, and then the fact that it is ultimately revealed that. When David does get the answer he was looking for, it was implanted there for him to to get him back to uh, to William Hurt. So I found Doctor No fascinating, but uh, why oh no, Scott? I just think I, that's definitely something that Kubrick would not have done is to put Robin Williams yeah. in that role. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It annoyed yeah. and annoyed me as as Robin yeah, Williams he- does. 
Stanley Kubrick would never put a chameleonic uh, comedic actor <laughs> into a film. This has never, never been done. Uh, and certainly would never like have a like a mid-scene twist where that beloved comedic actor reveals himself as something uh, deeper and more sort of more ominous in, in a lot of ways. Back in the day, the Dr. No being Robin Williams irritated me. It did have that feeling of let's get the biggest celebrity we can find to do this uh, wacky voiceover role. And it, it felt way too Aladdin. Now, I mean, I look back at on it with that feeling of, you know, you've, first of all, I miss Robin Williams. Um, mm -hmm. And it's always, it's good to hear his voice again. And second of all, you've got something that's, a fast paced patter that's a, a kind of like gesture character who's playing with your mind. Yeah, of, of course that should be Robin Williams. But also just, you know, in the same way that, that Robin Williams would sometimes take on roles that would take him in a very serious direction, the transition in the Dr. No scene between this Aladdin-esque genie patter of, uh, I've, I've got whatever you need, but I'm also going to cheat you as much as possible. Switching to this very serious, very solemn recitation of a Yeats poem, I think just has a lot of impact because it's Robin Williams, because you go from from this like goofy manic delivery to this whispered recitation, this this imparting of uh, serious knowledge, which, uh, by the way, also just imparting a poem that I happen to absolutely love and had completely forgotten was referenced here. So having that come out of nowhere just felt like a hell of an Easter egg. Can I share with you a theory I just thought of just now about Afri Yang? <laughs> <laughs> Half-baked theories are our favorite I love kind. It. Is, so, it, is so, it related to Robin Williams' appearance in the movie? Nope. This is complete. This is a total non. This is total non sucker. But maybe the, we can just pivot off this into something else. My theory of five minutes ago is that is that Afri Yang is is a hold on to your physical media movie and <laughs> that and that and that if you think about if you think about yang as being you know you can you can work on these parts right he's got the parts that you get that of course can be fixed but the core of him cannot be accessed by anyone right that's I, I the, that saying. is the property that is the property of the creator of that you cannot have the soul of something the soul of something is it now belongs to sony or 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 uh or netflix or whatever like it's like you know you can't have it it's not yours anymore it's proprietary it's proprietary that's right this is a proprietary right yang is a proprietor the core of yang the heart of yang this the soul that we we are we have discovered and and found uh so much to to uh so enriching uh that that is not ours to have that is not ours to keep that is something that is that is that we have to uh, return because we because we were only we're only renting it we were not, we don't own it so it's a hold on to your physical media movie after Yang. So in terms of holding on to your physical media, one of the things I most wanted to get to in the first half that we we had to move on from was the degree to which the junkyard, the dumping of all of this physical media, all of these, you know, dissected robot parts and the scavengers that come to sort of pick them up and start trying to put themselves together is just indicative in that really unspoken world building way of a society that's very, very careless about the things it creates and the things it discards. Mm. And the contrast between that and after Yang and the amount of time we see spent on exploring what can be done about Yang, like, can we save Yang? If not, can we save his experiences? He's been saving his experiences. The difference between 
obsessing about the soul of Yang and what it means and how we can access it versus discarding all of these personalities that in many ways come across as people with feelings, maybe not fully nuanced feelings, but certainly they care about the things they've been taught to care about. Uh, I think that's a strong contrast between these two movies and particularly just in terms of setting up a world where people are very casual about creating children effectively and then throwing and programming them, away. them to feel pain <laughs> <laughs> that's turn what's off my pain really respecters? really twisted yeah one extremely important connection that we kind of got a little bit into in, in when talking about the family unit but maybe we should drill into a little bit uh more here is uh, the idea of both david and yang and mika being adopted into mm-hmm. in, into a family and what that ends up meaning and how that ends up kind of shaping their childhood and our perception of their uh, childhood uh genevieve yeah i uh i didn't bring this up in the the first half of our after yang discussion but probably the the thing i connected to most with after yang after the sort of immediate like grief memory element of it is sort of the the way that adoption is worked into its premise and specifically the ethics of adoption and interracial uh, adoption in, in particular and I, again to, to get a little personal like adoption is something that i've thought about down the line but it's very complicated and it's not something that can be entered into lightly, particularly when you're adopting a child from a culture that isn't your own. And what I find so interesting about After Yang is that its premise just acknowledges this as a baseline fact that parents who adopt children from cultures that aren't their own have a duty to impart their cultural identity onto them somehow. And there's actually a a business model to allow this in, in, in this future. And that in and of itself is fascinating. And then there's this other layer of Yang himself being adopted into this family and not really being seen as a quote-unquote child, you know, a, a real child within that family unit until after the fact, you know. And that part feels most directly connected to AI, which they never really frame it as adoption, but it very much is. And the the idea that the fantasy that it can be as simple as having this child imprint on you simply because you have decided to call them your child and how misguided that is and how short-sighted and selfish it is. Um, I think it really opens up a lot of the, the complex morality of choosing to adopt. And like I said, that's something that I wrestle with personally. So in both cases, that really struck me. Yeah, I think it's very different degrees of kind of the similar idea of uh, bringing bringing in an outsider and thinking that you can just smoothly integrate them into your home. In Mika's case, it's just a child from another culture who they want to have a connection with her culture. They want her to speak Mandarin. They want her to know fun facts about China. As we, we keep coming back to that detail because it's kind of lampshaded in the film in a memorable mm-hmm. way. It's, it's almost always spoken as if it's got scare quotes around it. Mm-hmm. But, you know, she... She is being adopted young enough that they could just raise her in like their own culture and she wouldn't necessarily know that she was missing anything until she she got older. But in AI, they're 
literally adopting something that's not the same species that they are. They're mm-hmm. they're adopting effectively an alien, an outsider, an elf almost. I did actually write down in my notes watching it the first time, like, oh, he's an elf. You know, he's he's inhuman. He his emotions are inscrutable, and he is eternal. And they're not. And he's going to watch them die. So, like the idea of bringing the outsider into the family and assuming that they're they're going to integrate smoothly is a pretty fraught one on on an emotional level. And in one case, you have a family that's actively trying to make sure that instead of assimilating uh, this child, instead of like just melting potting her, they make sure that she does have a connection to others. And in the other, they imprint him in a way that makes him in some ways incapable of connecting with anybody except Mm -hmm. them, you know, with, with his own culture, so to speak. You know, he he meets other Mecca and he spends time with them and and even like learns from them, maybe even feels friendship for them. But his overriding desire to get back to the person he's programmed to feel for uh, takes over everything else. You know, he's just he's not capable of being part of the culture that the Meccas have created Mm -hmm. because he he can only care about the one thing he's been forced to care about. That's also quite dark <laughs> it's a dark movie yeah it yeah. really is and, and i mean yeah i mean that's a contrast a point of contrast between these films i i don't yeah. really see after yang as being a dark film i mean i feel no. i almost feel like being being again i think a notably optimistic and and warm film which is like <laughs> which is a steven Sp- <laughs> would we expect the the bleaker film to be the steven spielberg film do we ever expect that? <laughs> well, it's it's hopeful in a quieter way than I think we would ever expect of Spielberg, and like it's in sentimental in a, in a quieter way. I mean, that last scene the, with the the singing is pretty. That does drive it home pretty hard. Oh, definitely. but it does feel like af- after Yang is like kind of very deliberately moving us through the stages of grief so that we end on acceptance, and it feels right. I think there is just a degree to which. AI is a a pretty cynical film about exposing the cracks in a lot of human culture, whereas After Yang is kind of a fundamentally idealistic film where there are a lot of flaws on display here. There are a lot of of cracks in the family unit. There are lies being told. There are responsibilities being shirked. But there's just much more of a sense of everyone being well-intentioned in their way. And ultimately, by the end of the film in particular, everybody wanting to do right by each other uh, in a way that I just don't think is present in AI or meant to be present in AI. Yeah. I, maybe I'm, I just, again, a little bit more sympathetic to some characters in AI. I do feel like there's some, you know, Monica in particular, but, but even the father, it's like, Oh, this is something that what they, what they're, they're doing is human. It's just not in, in, in it's just not necessarily correct. I don't see the dad from AI driving all over town trying to get David repaired. Uh, if you were in a different movie, <laughs> no, yeah. I guess not. I guess not. I mean, the, yeah, I mean that was, yeah, da- the dad in AI is definitely looking for a quick, quick fix here, which is, uh, you know, part of the. And then Monica and her, you know, correctly reads that as repulsive and wants this creepy thing out of her out of her house immediately. This creepy thing that eats uh, <laughs> pretends to eat meals when he doesn't eat and uh, pretends to sleep when he doesn't sleep. Uh, y- Yang, much more uh, 
chill, much more, you know, much more the much more the Android you can live with, and uh, then uh, it's a little a little intense to live with. Uh, he's got David. his own interests too. He's got his, his butterfly collection. He, he's, he's not <laughs> in your face. Yeah, he's, he's, observing he's observing things too. Like he's picking up. He's just kind of out. You know, the images we get are quite artful in his his memory. He's he's mm-hmm. training his mind's eye towards uh, quite some interesting, you know, cinematic things. He's got he's got quite uh, a cinematographer's uh, POV. Getting back to that sense of of well-intentioned versus not well-intentioned, though, and carting Yang around all over town. In AI, you have the fundamental problem of Professor Hobby, who is the person who theoretically should be caring most about David, uh, about his welfare. We, I, It's intimated that David is modeled after his own child who he mm-hmm. lost possibly to death, possibly he grew up. It's It's kind of deliberately unclear, but clearly there's a very personal connection of some kind there. And he, when he gets David back, he's just overjoyed. He's, he's delighted. And you get that sense that maybe David has finally at least come to the hands of someone who cares about him as an individual and as a person. And instead, what you get is somebody who immediately... More horror. <laughs> yeah. Well, okay. So, like, unpacking that, he immediately neglects David, leaving him alone to sit with these horrible realizations that he's had, to the point where he's he's allowed to go commit suicide in despair, while the person who has just said, like, we care about you so much, we're so excited to see you again, has just, like, abandoned him. He finds out that he is a product, that everything that's unique about him is being infinitely reproduced and packaged and sold. Hobby is, in theory, the person who is supposed to take responsibility, you know, the adult to appeal to the authority of who has the opportunity to make this into a happy story. You know, he's supposed to be the equivalent of the blue fairy, the the person that David can come to to get what he needs and maybe have his problems fixed. And instead, what he gets is his problems ignored and then exacerbated. And then he's he's left alone to die. And as dark as that ending is, it's it's still maybe only just a hair darker than the fact that this movie includes a small child who commits suicide out of despair at the the existential horror of life. Like <laughs> it's it's a lot. There's an, another mystery of that movie. Not to sidetrack us too much, but but hobby says he's going to go disappear and get the other people yeah. who we never see. I mean, is it possible that they exist in his head too? I mean, I don't, I don't, you know, he's, he's alone in that, in the building in the middle. It's like the only, the only <laughs> living boy in New York. Essentially. <laughs> yeah. uh, I, I, I guess I assumed I, they were the team we see in the opening scene and maybe by go get them, he meant, uh, you know, get, go get on the hologrammatron and tell them to like start arranging their trip to, to Manhattan. And that's why it takes so long. Perhaps. So before we we leave this connection of adoption, I I wanted to bring up another element of this or a, a, a sub connection, which is the idea that of creating a childhood for for someone and and what that looks like. And, and Tasha, you've already uh, pointed out that uh, David's childhood involves him being uh, abandoned, uh, attempted murder, and <laughs> suicide, among many other horrors. But you know, in that in the first act, we do kind of get a more uh, domestic vision of what childhood is being crafted for David. And um, it's it's very like 
awkward and it, it, like the parents don't seem to to know what to do with him like the only way that monica is able to connect with him is on sort of like the most baseline banal or as, as scott says like routine elements of of childhood which is as you say a, a very important part of it so maybe it's not as mundane or banal as i'm as i'm making it out to be and we've already talked kind of in uh in some depth about how in after yang Jake and Kira have kind of offloaded a lot of the the raising of Mika to Yang and sort of her childhood is very much shaped and informed by him. But I do want to highlight again that opening dance number, which is like a family activity. I think it's the only family activity we see all four of them participating in. And if we are to take it as something that actually happened and not just a sort <laughs> of opening credits fantasy, like I think it it is actually very sweet that this is like a big worldwide or nationwide, I don't know, sort of contest, like where everyone does a TikTok dance together. I don't know. <laughs> but but it does feel like very real to like what childhood kind of is today and might become in the future and, and parents kind of like getting on their kids level with with entertainment in a way. So I think in the context of the the childhood that Jake and Kira are creating for her, they, they do at least get a little credit for dancing with her. Yeah. It's very pandemic-y. Yeah. yeah that's what oh, I was God, too. Yeah. You're a little stir crazy. You're kind of just used to being with your little unit and not really interacting with other units, except uh, in this virtual way where you're all kind of connected. So I guess maybe the last uh, connection we should probably get to is a connection that is common to so many science fiction stories, which is that they kind of tell us what it means to be human. And, and in this case of a film like After Yang, you know, we are breaking it down into component parts. We are seeing the pieces of 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 memory, for example, the th the things that these 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 sort of core elements that that kind of construct this character, and we get a little bit of that in AI as well. Yes. Yeah, I've just come to a place with science fiction where I think if you scratch any remotely thoughtful science fiction story, what you find is a, a question of what being human means, you know, whether it's what about our lives? Are we going to maintain 100 or 500 or 1000 years from now? Like what's endemic enough to humanity that it's going to persist? Or whether it's what's uh, what about humanity is going to persist off world, you know, in a, a completely different setting in maybe a, a horror filled uh, dystopian future setting or, you know, maybe if we overcome most of our instincts, a, a sunny or brighter setting, like what's going to be the same and how are we how are we different from all of the things that we create that look human but aren't or act human but aren't? And I think fundamentally, these stories both ask that question in very interesting ways. And one of them kind of comes to the conclusion that, you know, human emotion, an awful lot of human emotion can be faked, but still it lacks the dimensionality of what it means to be human. I think AI comes down to some very cynical thoughts about what being human means, as we've uh, talked about before, and that AI comes to some warmer, brighter conclusions, but at the same time, maybe acknowledges that artificial humanity is possible. If humanity is just a question of curiosity and, and exploration, learning and caring about things, caring about other people, being capable of self-examination and growth, maybe Yang is as human as 
the actual humans in this story, which is something that as sympathetic as David is in so many ways, I just don't think it's a place that he ever gets to or was intended to get to or that the story wants him to get to. Well, it's it's memory is the key is the key element to me that that is the key con- that constructive kind of building block of of humanity, and you see it in Afri Yang. I mean, you see it in a film like Memento. What is Memento? But a film about how about how um, about this person who is you know trying to kind of kind of construct his his conscience through uh, memory in the way we 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 can do it in a deceptive fashion. But it, still, those are those are the things that we kind of have to glom onto in order to to be human and so and so yang becomes more human to us and more human to jake as he access is able to access the thing he's not that apple or whatever of the future tells him he, he can't access he's able to access this this me- this memory and, and he's able to kind of see oh wow this is there's a, there's this is a person of substance this is a this is we can think about him as a person not as a machine now because because he's a store of all of these memories and these memories are taken as a as a sum build something build build humanity is it an optimistic thing to believe that memory can build humanity? Is it an optimistic thing to believe that humanity is an artificial construct that can be duplicated? I don't know. But the movie, I think, makes makes a very warm and hopeful gesture in that direction. For sure. Well, we could go on for, again, several more podcasts about these two movies. So much to unpack here. Hopefully, uh, our listeners will visit them or revisit it themselves. Uh, you can do so. AI is available widely available on digital streaming services and on DVD and Blu-ray. After Yang is in limited release and streaming on Showtime. I feel like I'm going to have to do some sort of rant on that, but that's for another podcast. Uh, (laughs) Well, I mean, typically with these things, if it's not, if it's not disappearing into Apple TV plus, like this is an A24 film and they, they do often make these exclusivity deals, but I expect that (sighs) in a few months it'll be on like widespread digital rental. Let us hope that is the case. That's it for this edition of the next picture show, but we'll be back next week with a new pairing. Keith, you want to set us up for our episodes releasing on March 29th and April 5th? For our next episodes, we'll be taking two trips into the not-so-nice parts of 1970s Texas. First, we'll revisit Toby Hooper's 1974 horror classic, The Texas Chainsaw Massacre, a film about well, a Texas Chainsaw Massacre, but there's a lot more going on in the movie than that. Then we'll bring in X, a new horror film from Ty West that pays homage to Hooper's film, but also explores the fears and possibilities at the heart of a whole era of disreputable filmmaking. We hope you join us. For now, we welcome your feedback on AI, After Yang, and anything else film-related you'd like to talk about. Email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net and come talk to us on Patreon where you'll find feedback, letters, and discussion. Before closing out this week's episode, where can we find everyone these days? Genevieve Kosky. You can find me on Twitter at Genevieve Kosky, and I am the TV editor at Vulture.com. Tasha? I mostly hang out in Rouge City these days. Uh, <laughs> nice. If you want to just like ping me on my my calm necklace, um, I, we can set something up, uh, probably virtual holographic, uh, unless it's set to do not disturb, in which case um, I'm rocking it with one of my gigolo bots. <laughs> uh, if that's the case, you could instead look up my work at Polygon.com, where I'm the film and streaming editor. Or you can come find me on Twitter at Tosh Robinson. 
Uh, Keith, how about you? I'm a freelance writer. You can find my, you know, I, I linked everything on t- on my uh, Twitter account. It's uh, KFIP3000. You can find me at places like GQ, The Ringer, TV Guide, Vulture. Um, you know, look for me there. Uh, I also have a, a book that'll be out one week from when this episode appears. It's called Age of Cage, Four Decades of Hollywood Through One Singular Career. It's about the films and life and career of Nicolas Cage. It's available wherever books are sold. So if you'd like, please check it out. Scott, how about you? Uh, Yeah, you can find me on Twitter at Scott underscore Tobias. Uh, you can find my work and Keith's work as well at uh, The Reveal, our, our, oh, yeah, our newsletter. Sorry. You did forget. <laughs> I thought you were just waiting for me to say <laughs> that you that you do work on this other thing with me. And that's the, the reveal, uh, dot substack.com. Um, hey, sign up for free. You can sign up for free. See what you think. Get a bunch of free stuff. Sign Maybe if you like it, you subscribe. And then get a paid subscription and you gift it to like five people. And then- yeah, <laughs> something like that. But just, just, but, but know that you can check it out. You know, don't, don't uh, take that first step. It's, it's, it, you'll be fine. And you can find my work at other places like the New York Times, uh, Vulture, uh, Guardian, uh, and other fine outlets. You can stay updated on the Next Picture Show at nextpictureshow.net or on Twitter at nextpicturepod. Get bonus content and open discussion at patreon.com slash next picture show. And as always, we appreciate your ratings and reviews on Apple podcasts or wherever you listen to the show. Thanks to Dan, the baked Jakes for his assistance producing this podcast. The next picture show is proud to be part of the film spotting family of podcasts. Please tune in next time. Like a simple sound